Hey everyone, if you're a regular listener of the show, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. It's a great way to support the show and get extra exclusive episodes, including Digging for Justice, my DC movie rewatch podcast. Bonus episodes are available beginning at the $1 level, you can cancel anytime, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman For All Seasons and Superman Kryptonite, both drawn by the late, great Tim Sale, is returning guest, Scott Honig. Scott, welcome. Thank you, and thanks for thinking of me for this episode. Uh, As I mentioned off air, I'm I'm not happy for the occasion to have to talk about these comics, but I always enjoy talking comics with you. So we're going to pay tribute to Tim Sale, who really deserves the tribute. Well said. I addressed this in a prior episode, but I just want to reiterate my condolences to Tim Sale's family, friends, collaborators, fellow fans. I know we were all saddened by his untimely passing in June 2022, so not too long ago uh, from this recording. And we were speaking about this off air as well. I've had this episode on my master list for a really long time to look at For All Seasons and Kryptonite together. Obviously, they're both drawn by Tim Sale. They both look at this early period in Superman's career. And while they are not direct, literal companions, you really can look at Kryptonite as as a spiritual sequel to For All Seasons. So for a long time, I've sort of said, oh, it'd be be good to look at those two together. And I figured we'd get to it down the line. Uh, And then after Tim Sale passed, I felt that this was the time to do it, to pay tribute to him and his work. Uh, and these incredible stories, especially for all seasons, which has been and remains, I think will forever be one of my all-time favorite, not just Superman stories, but comic book stories. Oh, it's right up there for me as well. I mean, it's it's just a, a brilliant work on all levels, from the writing to obviously the art. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I didn't realize because they had, I guess, been released so far apart, I didn't really make the connection in my own head between... Superman for all seasons and Superman kryptonite, you know, I mean, I think there was 15 years or so between their, their publication. And, and I read them sort of as they, as they appeared. So this was a really interesting um, episode to prepare for because I got to read them in succession and you're absolutely right. They, they work really, really well as sort of Superman become, you know, becoming Superman and, and moving away from Smallville and into Metropolis proper. And then, you know, having some of his earliest adventures, obviously the sort of introduction of his, his major uh, weakness and all that. It was, uh, it was really neat to, to see them together. Absolutely. And I will say I've read for all seasons many times at this point, I've only ever read kryptonite a couple of times. And this was the first time that I read them together. So let me just say for anyone out there, if you've never read, if you've never read these works in general, certainly please go out and read them. But if you've never read them together, I really do recommend it. I think they pair uh, very nicely. They are by different writers, of course. So For All Seasons was a four-part miniseries in the late 90s uh, by frequent collaborators Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. And it it chronicles the first year uh, of Superman's career, but it's really not, it's not an origin story in the in the traditional way we typically think of them, a la Birthright or Secret Origin or Man of Steel. It's really an emotional origin story. And I think that's why one of the reasons uh, why that has really stood the test of time and I think always will. And then Kryptonite was a six-part storyline in 
a relatively short-lived ongoing series called Superman Confidential. And that was written by again, the late Darwin Cook and, and drawn by Tim Sale. And it was published over the first five issues of Superman Confidential. Then there was a really long delay. And I think it was number 13 where they published the, the final uh, part. 11. Oh, it was 11. Yeah, it was okay. yeah. All right. So not, not 13. All right. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's collected in, in one volume called Superman Kryptonite. And, and, and like you said, it details uh, Clark's first experience with Kryptonite. And with this question about what, if any, limitations does he have? Uh, so again, in terms of the emotional territory that it explores, it really, again, it really feels like a spiritual successor to to For All Seasons. Yeah, absolutely. And and having Tim Sale on both of them, you know, even though there were different writers, it, it serves to sort of unify them in that way. Um, and having Richard Starkings do the lettering for both of them also. I mean, I, I know a lot of people don't always sort of notice the lettering and they, you know, they often say good lettering is you're not supposed to notice it. It's supposed to sort of blend in seamlessly, but, but the fact that that stylistically remained the same, even as the writers changed, I think, I think helped a, a bit as well. Um, I will also say right up front before we get into Tim sale that, you know, having Bjorn Hansen's watercolors on top of Tim sales artwork in for all seasons is it really completes the aesthetic of it. Uh, and it's something that I really love. I know this is not the art Hansen episode, but still, um, you know, the two of them working in tandem, it, it's, it's a, just a dynamite art team. Um, and then it was uh, um, Dave Stewart who colored the the kryptonite arc. Um, and his palette is, is a little bit darker, a little bit sort of richer, more saturated, which I think serves well to move the story forward as Superman as Clark matures a little bit and we see a sort of a, a darker theme in the story. Um, so I thought that even though the coloring wasn't unified in that way, I think the, the movement uh, of colorist to, to a darker palette served the story really, really well. Uh, yes, I agree a hundred percent. I think the, the different approaches served each story the, the way, the way it needed to, because for, for all seasons, it's, nostalgia and Americana. And so you want those, those warm, vivid colors and, and that's what you get in for all seasons. And then, yeah, there is this, this darker mood, uh, in, in kryptonite, not that kryptonite is such a dark story per se, but it did really have the feel to me of, of some of those more golden age type stories. Uh, even though we do have, uh, Clark utilizing a robot at one point, which is (laughs) a trapping of the silver age, but it definitely had like that, that darker, grittier feel of, of more of those early golden age stories. So, uh, yeah, I think the art again, you, in terms of the, the pencils, you know, we'll talk about what Tim sale did in each of these, but, uh, I really, I do think, yeah, the coloring definitely went a long way towards differentiating the looks of, of these books. Yeah. I, I don't know. Were you reading the kryptonite arc, uh, from the trade paperback? Yes. So I reread um, Darwin Cook's introduction to that, where he, he which I, which I didn't know, I didn't, and I because I had originally read it in its single issue form and had not reread it since I bought the trade, uh, and he talks about the golden age origins of the story that that he was actually pulling from a story from 1949, I think it was Superman 61, he said, and uh, and in there, Kryptonite was introduced in the comics, even though it was originally introduced on the radio show. Um, but the story that it was it, it appeared in was not really didn't really work for modern audiences, modern storytelling. So he took some of the elements and sort of updated them, and I thought that was really uh, that was really smart to be able to to do that. I, I, I enjoyed the changes that he clearly made 
pushing it forward and making it, I think, really not just accessible, but really enjoyable to, you know, a 21st century audience. Yeah, totally. I, I read that introduction as well. And this is an example of this, this podcast process really just enhancing my overall perspective because I have now read Superman 61. We covered it when we did the pre-crisis mm. origins well over a year ago. And so I've read Superman 61 not too long ago. And, and yeah, it's, you know, a little hokey by today's standards. It's, you know, this fortune teller who gets a hold of this gem that turns out to be kryptonite and it affects Superman. And uh, he eventually, as Darwin Cook details in that introduction, you know, traces its trail through space and, and flies so fast that he's able to travel through time uh, and actually see these visions of Krypton. Uh, but it was, it was you know, monumental, not just for the, the kryptonite aspect of it, but the, and the reason why we talked about it in that episode was that was the first time in, in the comics that he learned where he actually came from. Right. Uh, which, again, similarly happens here in, in the Kryptonite story, but was, was was given an update. Now, from a story perspective, there are things in Kryptonite that I think work well, others not, not as much. But I do definitely appreciate the attempt to, uh, again, to take that Superman 61 story and put a fresh spin on it. And as you saw in that introduction, and I, I did appreciate this, uh, you know, Cook talked about purposely trying to create a story that would not be so tied to continuity that mm -hmm. it would later be rendered moot. Right. And, and, you know, he was, he was definitely careful in the introduction to, you know, to not dump on the works of the, you know, the ongoing Superman creators, but there definitely was this air of like, look, things are always changing and getting thrown out the window. So I'm going to try to stick as closely as possible to, you know, the original intent and the historical side of the character and, and make something that could kind of fit within that mold, but also, stand on its own forever and you know i don't know that you know jeff Loeb was necessarily in that same mindset but being both of those stories for the most part with some exceptions which we'll talk about achieve that and that's a beautiful thing and i and i love that these stories you can pick them up doesn't matter you know which version of continuity we're talking about which era you can pick these stories up and they work and i think they always will and that's a beautiful thing uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And to, to bring it back to Tim Sale, you know, if, if Cook's objective here was to do what you just described, and, and he says that not only in this story, but in, in a lot of his work, I mean, we see it most clearly, I think, in, in DC's New Frontier, which he both wrote and drew, um, he's going for that sort of older, nostalgic, timeless quality, then Tim Sale, having done Superman for All Seasons before this, was the absolute perfect choice for the artist here. And, and, and you know, to have Darwin Cook, a, a writer artist, writing for another artist, another brilliant artist, I think is one of the reasons why the story works as well as it does, despite, I agree with you, some shortcomings. Um, I just, I think in this particular story, the art, Tim Sale's art just carries it. So even even in those moments, where I was like, oh, all right, I don't know if that quite works as well as I'd like. I was just so captivated by by the visuals on the page that I just didn't really care. There's this added layer of sadness in looking at Kryptonite, the fact that both of those creators uh, have now passed you know, far earlier than you know you would have anticipated. And I think in both cases, leaving behind a truly remarkable body of work that will stand the test of time but not not an incredibly voluminous one you know when you when you look at the bibliographies of darwin cook and tim sale it's not like it goes on and on for pages and obviously at the end of the day the the 
the human element of what we lost, that's the most important and, and the loss in the lives of, of the families and friends. And I don't mean to you know diminish that in any respect, but just from, from the, the fan perspective, from the art perspective, it's so sad that we won't have more from them. Uh, you know, we talked about Tim Sale. I did an episode on the long Halloween saga and Loeb and Sale put out a special uh, within the past year. And in interviews, they talked about how there seemed to be an intention to kind of start to do specials like that again. You know, there was, you know, always rumblings or, or fan speculation uh, that they might do more in their Marvel color series. I always wondered if maybe they would take the four all seasons treatment and give it to another DC character or revisit that period for Superman. I mean, you know, so many things that it's like, oh, you know, maybe these would have been possibilities and, and now they're not. But again, I do take comfort in the fact that for both of those creators, like the works that they made, they, I think people will forever be discovering them and they live on in that way. So that's, uh, again, that's a really special thing. Absolutely. I think, I think you and I agree that uh, our purpose here today is, and, and I'm going to, and I'm going to quote Kevin Smith, who in his podcast, uh, Fat Man on, no, it's a, a Fat Man Beyond. Um, when he learned of Tim Sale's death, he was in the middle of recording when he was told of Tim Sale's death. Um, you know, he had a you know, very strong reaction because he's such a big fan, but then ultimately came back to something he says a lot about people who've passed and just bad things in general that, you know, rather than sitting here and cursing the darkness, right. Rather than sitting here and lamenting the loss, let's, he says, light a candle. Let's celebrate the life and the work of this great artist. Uh, and I think that that's what you set out to do. And, and again, I appreciate you allowing me to join you for this. Um, if you'll allow me, this seems like a good time to tell you sort of my Tim sale origin story, like how I found him as an artist, because I think it provides some context for you and for the listeners about sort of how I got to his, his work on Superman, which we're there, we're then going to talk about. Um, so I've mentioned, I think a few times to you and, and even on the podcast that X-Men was my gateway drug, whereas Superman was yours. Um, so I first discovered him in the mid nineties where uh, he drew a mini series called Wolverine and Gambit Victims. And this was very much in the era of, you know, Jim Lee style at Marvel and Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, you know, it was those image creators who really defined the look of Marvel in the early nineties and, and continued into the mid nineties. And so when I saw Tim sales art for the first time, I hated it. I hated it. It was so different from what I was used to reading. I mean, Andy Kubert was drawing X-Men at the time. Joe Matarera was drawing Uncanny X-Men. I mean, he could not have been more different than these sort of, you know, more dynamic sort of mainstream house style artists. Uh, and it was just, Tim Sale's stuff was so moody and dark and sort of heavy on the inks. And I just, I didn't know what to make of it. I now realize that he's the perfect choice for a story like that because it, it was this side miniseries that wasn't a part of the main X-Men story where Wolverine's being framed for these grisly murders. And it is a darker book. It's not a bright, shiny superhero book. It is a very dark book. And, and Tim Sale's style fits perfectly. It was the beginning of me starting to come to my own as a comics fan and, and scholar, realizing that you need an artist to fit the story. It's not that, you know, you pick an artist whose style you like and then hire them to do everything. Um, Jim Lee would not have worked on that book. Andy Kubert would not have worked on that book. Tim Sale works on that book. And I've since revisited it. And now I love it. 
I love it. Um, after that, I discovered Batman the Long Halloween, even though I wasn't really reading monthly Batman comics, but you know, it's something that someone pointed me to, and I point other people to if they say, what's a good self-contained Batman story that has a lot of the elements of Batman that people love. And I say the long Halloween, it, you know, it it has a lot of his main rogues gallery. It is a mystery and detective story. It is beautiful. And Tim sale, once again, is the perfect artist for that. It was only after those that I discovered Superman for all seasons. And that was when I think I really became a Tim Sale fan. Something about it, as you said, that idea of nostalgia and Americana in that book with a character who I, I loved, that everything just clicked and coalesced and I fell in love with that book. And, and not, not to discount Jeff Loeb's writing because it's absolutely brilliant in this book as well, but it was, it was that. And I didn't know it at the time, but now rereading the book and seeing Tim Sale's dedication in the beginning, he's got three of them. The first one really hit me. He dedicates it first for Norman Rockwell and his love of a vision of America that resonates through its limitations, through its limitations. And that's when I went, oh, this is Rockwell. This is definitely Rockwell, um, just in Tim Sale's style. Um, and it, and it, it, it works. I mean, this reread, I just, I, I, I just settled into it and just loved every bit of it. Uh, and then, of course, discovering his Marvel color uh, books with Jeff Loeb as well, which, which picks up, you know, stylistically some similar threads as Superman for all seasons, but first for some other characters. But I think for all seasons remains the centerpiece of my love of Tim Sale. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Thank you for for sharing all of that. I, I I identify with with so much of it. I mean, again, different different entry points, but yeah, the you're, you're right. I mean, you definitely see the importance that you know the right artist for the right story can make. And look, you know, and the audience knows. I, I always tend to focus more on on the the writing side and the story side when we talk about these these comics. But I, I definitely appreciate the value of an artist, especially in a visual medium, of course. Yeah. And but I think with with these works in particular, you really see just how much of a two-hander it is. And and yeah, not to not to discount the work of, of Loeb or Cook. And with, with Loeb in particular, most of Sale's comic book work was with Jeff Loeb. So they were very frequent collaborators. And I and and you see this with other Loeb collaborators as well. I, I do think he has an ability to bring out the best and the artists he's working with and write to their strengths. So I don't mean to to discount that, but you look at Sale's work in particular and you really see what a difference the right artist can make. Now, you hit on a couple of things that actually tie into uh, questions from one of our patrons. So patrons have the ability to ask a, a question or, or, or give a comment. Uh, we received about half a dozen from, from Brian Dempsey. Uh, all great questions, I have to say. And I think we'll hit on a couple here and, and others as we're making our way through. Uh, one of them was, uh, where or when did you first encounter Tim Sale's art? And, and another question he had dealt with uh, kind of what you what you address at the beginning. He said, I, you know, I know some don't, or I hear some don't like Tim Sale's art. What are your thoughts? And and you know, what do you think? And you know, it was interesting hearing you know you give your initial impression. I know you know one of my old buddies from the comic shop. He you know he was not a fan. He was way more into the like the J. Scott Campbell and Michael Turner style, and that was really what he gravitated toward. And he was not a fan of this. And here's the thing. I think you know when you're talking art, right? It's subjective and. I can understand if someone doesn't like the specific style. I wouldn't 
argue that per se. I love it, but if someone doesn't, that's fine. But I think in terms of the draftsmanship and the storytelling, that's where I will die on that hill <laughs> because <laughs> you know you look at there are so many moments where the art really tells the story, and and that's that's such a skill. And and so I, I think regardless of whether or not you like the the style of his drawing, the way he's able to tell the story is so apparent on the page. As far as my introduction, so I've actually still never read, there are only a couple of things of sales that I've never read. I've never read that Wolverine Gambit miniseries, and I've never read the Challengers of the Unknown miniseries that Loeb and Nor have I. And it's one of those things, I will get to it, but part of me likes that there's still something. It's just like with Darwin Cook, one of the only things of his that I've never read is that before Watchmen miniseries, I think he wrote two and one of them he drew. Yep. And I've never read those and they're sitting on my shelf and it's like, I get, I'll get there, but I kind of like knowing that there's still something new to discover. But for me, I, I'm almost positive Long Halloween came first for me. And I, I've talked about this on the show before, but the late 90s and early 2000s were a very special time for me as a comic book fan because that was when I was moving beyond just reading the monthly Superman books during the Triangle era, and I was starting to read other stories, other characters, other publishers. And then in the early 2000s, I started working at the comic book shop, and I was around all this stuff, and I was talking to people about it. And I genuinely think, even nostalgia aside, I think there were some great stories and great runs that were coming out, especially at DC and Marvel too, though, in the in the early to mid-2000s. But Long Halloween and For All Seasons, I think they, I, I kind of came to both of them within a relatively short period of time. But it was right at that sort of inflection point for me. And I think I just kept coming back to this idea that, um, you know, it, it, those were some of the first stories that showed me what a comic could be and what a comic could do. And there would be plenty of other stories that would reinforce that. I, you know, I always cite Gotham Central as another example. And, and I know for people out there who are more into the independent stuff, I know I'm still, we're still talking very mainstream <laughs> DC stuff, but but, you know, something like Gotham Central, it's like, oh, like you can have like a law and order in the DCU. Like, this is amazing. And, and so sort of like in that same vein, reading Long Halloween and this, this very, you know, moody murder mystery, it's like, this is fantastic. And to go to something like Superman for all seasons and see, like I said before, this emotional origin story that was really concerned far more about the heart of the character than the continuity or, or any of the other trappings. It, it, again, it was really just eye-opening. Like, oh, this, like, I didn't know. You know, I'm a kid at this point. I'm 10 when, uh, or 11 when For All Seasons comes out. And I think I read it, you know, probably like not too long after it was originally published. And again, it was just so eye-opening that that this is what comics can be. So I, these books always have a very special place for me uh, in and of themselves, but also for just capturing that moment in time for me. Like it really is very significantly meaningful to me. I agree. I mean, when, when we were young, and, and I was a, certainly a little bit older than, than you were when you discovered these books, I was in my, I guess I was hovering around 20 years old. Because uh, I remember being sort of college or just post-college when I when I discovered For All Seasons. But, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to see now in hindsight, the way that they've you know, Long Halloween and, and For All Seasons have withstood the test of time and have become sort of classics in, in superhero storytelling. But at the time, no one could have known that exactly, you know, what, what place in the pantheon that they, they'd hold. Um, 
and I didn't have the vocabulary to express it then, and I didn't have the context to express it then, but something something inside me knew when I read For All Seasons that this was an elevation of the medium and the genre, that this was doing something that the other sort of monthly superhero stories just didn't do, couldn't do. And again, that's not a knock on anybody else's work, just it, this one felt different. And again, I didn't have the words to express it. And I don't even know if I had, I knew anybody I could express it to who would understand that. Uh, I just knew that it felt different. And now looking back at it, um, a huge part of why it feels different is what Tim Sale brought to, to those books. Well said. And, and let me piggyback off of that because, again, especially for this episode, I was even more dialed into the art than, than I normally am reading those, those yeah. works. And with Sale, especially in For All Seasons, I was so struck by the level of detail that he incorporated into each scene, whether it was the front porch of the Kent farm or the shelf at the barber shop or the general store, whatever it was, it felt like such a lived in world. It was so immersive. And it's one of those things that I don't know that I, I ever would have articulated that in the past, certainly not the first time I read it as a kid, but even when I read it a couple of years ago, I don't know that I would have, I would have necessarily uh, grabbed onto it in that way that I could articulate. But I think even if you're not conscious of it, it still has that effect on you as you're reading it. And you get this amazing juxtaposition of those incredibly detailed scenes. And then, you know, so you have that, but then you also have these, these big action set pieces where it's Clark versus the tornado or the flood or the missile in issue two. And there, you know, the detail is kind of dialed back, right? And you just get these like sweeping splash pages and they're gorgeous. And so just that, the, the contrast of those two, uh, it really, really, really stood out to me this time more than ever. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, as soon as you started saying that, the word that came to my mind was lived in and you nailed it. Um, one of the, one of the examples that, that comes to my mind is there's, it, there's a repetition of a particular panel in three of the four issues of Superman for all seasons. It's in, I think one, two, and then four, um, where in one, there's this beautiful big panel takes up like easily half the page of Clark lying in bed. In his, in his bedroom on the Kent farm. And he's got sort of one arm behind his head supporting it and, and his one knee up. And you look around the room and it's a teenager's bedroom. There's posters on the wall and there's tchotchkes on the desk. And there's just, it, again, it feels really lived in. Like somebody actually occupies this space on a daily basis. And then in the second issue, it's the exact same composition. It's the same size and shape panel. And it's Clark, a little bit older, lying in his bed in his apartment in Metropolis. He's in the same position. And now it's an adult's apartment. It is not a child's bedroom. And so the trappings of the space are those of someone a little bit older, more mature. But the the mood is this, I mean, it's still him sort of in repose. It's him being pensive and, and, and you know, at home. And then we return in the last issue He's back on the Kent farm, but again, as an adult, and he's in that same childhood bedroom, but the bedroom is, is almost bare. 
because he's taken all of his childhood. They either gotten rid of them because he's no longer a child or he's taken them with him to his new home in Metropolis. And to see the same image sort of repeated those three times at three different times of his life. It's one of those beautiful storytelling techniques that allows you to trace the arc, the growth, the maturity of that, that one character and to see the environments growing and changing with him. That floored me. I never noticed that before until this reread. Uh, and I really appreciated uh, Tim Sale for that. Loved it. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that I that I clocked as well. Yeah. And the final one in issue four is the setting for one of my favorite bits of Pa Kent advice. Because this is the point in the story where Clark's really doubting himself. He's had this episode with Lex uh, in Metropolis uh, where... Uh, you know, Lex unleashed this virus. He made Clark think he might even be responsible for it himself. Uh, Lex provided a cure, but it cost the life of this scientist who was obsessed with Superman. And so he's just at a low point and he goes back to Smallville and, uh, and now Smallville is bracing for this, this flood. And, and, and it, like you said, Clark is in, in his bedroom there restless. And, you know, Pa comes in and gives him this whole speech about, you know, my first year as a farmer you know, the corn came in great. It was the talk of the county. I thought it was going to be like that every year. Next couple of years were, were terrible, you know, and I, you know, had this, you know, same sort of doubt. And he's like, over time, you know, I learned how to be a, a good farmer over time, son. And, you know, we'll talk more obviously about the story of, of it all as we get through it. But yeah. I, as, as a father, as, as you are as well, the, the Pa Kent stuff in particular Hits especially hard in For All Seasons. And one of the things that I love so much, and we, you know, we've talked about this with you in particular when we've covered Loeb before, the device that Loeb uses that I do appreciate because I think it just adds this other layer to that a lot of stories don't, don't often give you of not just narration, but narration from someone in Clark's orbit. Now, it's interesting comparing these two stories because For All Seasons gives you four issues each told from the perspective of a different person in Clark's life, Pa, Lois, uh, Lex, and, um, and Lana, whereas Kryptonite actually gives you Clark's internal monologue. So it's very, again, pairing them together, you really get the full picture. But what's especially cool about the Pa Kent of it all is that there, I mean, to my knowledge, there aren't a ton of other instances like this in the comics where you really get inside his head and we always see the the output, the end result. Like we always see the speech. That's exactly what Clark needs to hear at the right time. That takes some bit of of you know farming and spins it into this you know metaphor for for life and and super heroics. Yeah. But to to kind of hear you know to spend that time inside his head and hear him grapple with all of these big questions about how to parent this person. It just it sheds so much light. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> in rereading this, I mean, I was tearing up by the end of the first page where he's like, mm-hmm. they call him the man of steel, but there was a time before when he was just a man's son, my son. Ah, oh, the first page <laughs> to put it down. <laughs> yep. I'm just uh, thinking about it now and already getting, getting teary eyed again. So uh, yeah, no, I mean, especially, yeah, as, as a, as a parent, uh, as a father of sons, Right. We can we can relate to just how challenging parenthood, fatherhood is in general. And and this comic does what good superhero comics are supposed to do, which is to take, you know, an issue that faces real life people and hyperbolize them. Right. So it's now it's not just what is it to raise a son, but what is it to raise 
Superman. Right? It's the unique challenges of raising a child with the special needs that Clark has, you know, growing up. And and you know, to see Pa, who who generally, you know, we 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 usually see him sort of having the right thing to say. He always has the right analogy, whether it's farming or something else. And but to to hear him doubt himself, to hear him question, to hear him, you know, uh, uh, take to heart some of the challenges that he has with this, with this child who's becoming very quickly a man um, is again. Yeah. Like you said, one of the brilliant choices that, that Loeb makes here to have other people weigh in on what it is to be in Superman's orbit in whatever way that they they are but yeah the pasta hit particularly hard I, you know it calls to mind the scene that i've quoted a lot on the show from superman and lois from the superman and lois pilot mm-hmm. you know in that pilot and series you see f- very very little next to nothing of of pond we haven't even heard him speak yet uh, on the show uh but you know there's that scene where clark's having the heart to heart with uh with, with jordan out on the porch and He's like, you know, my dad, like, he was on his way to church and his life changed and he became a father. He's like, you know what he was doing. <laughs> and I, again, even putting aside the, the 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 Superman of it all, just being a father. I mean, like, I remember the, you know, the morning after our, our son was born. And, you know, we had done those uh, the, the classes at the hospital where they teach you how to diaper and all that. But you're doing it on yep. a doll. And I remember <laughs> that first morning when he pooped and he needed to be changed. And I was like, oh, I'm up. Like, this is it. <laughs> and it was just this weird thing of like something just like shifted into gear. And I was like, all right, here we go. And you got to do it. But it's and and that's, you know, something more, you know, tactical, not even talking about, uh, you know, actually imparting wisdom or solving problems. But just that feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing, but you just got to go for it. <laughs> I can't wait till Miles old enough to listen to this podcast and he gets to the episode where you talk about the first time he pooped. <laughs> He's yeah, going to love that. He'll love it. It'll be great. <laughs> Well, listen, on that note, let's take a quick commercial break and then we will continue. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available. And all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay. Listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services. And visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In The Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. 
Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Skokie, Illinois, Muncie, Indiana, or Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop. If you have kids and are looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Oh, yeah. And we're back. So, like I said, we had a bunch of questions from one of our patrons, Brian Dempsey, and I wanted to hit a couple of them with you now. And it's it's especially fitting that you're here because you joined me very recently uh, for our run of Lex Luthor episodes. And in fact, in that episode, we talked about Superman for All Seasons number three, which was the Lex-centric issue of that storyline. So, Brian said that he loves For All Seasons and while I understand Luther's post-crisis origin, including a receding hairline before he goes fully bald, Lex with hair is the one piece that detracts from For All Seasons' timeless quality. It really roots it in that time period. What, what's your take on that? I don't disagree, Brian. I, 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 I never liked the tufts of red hair uh, sticking out uh, on Lex. I always prefer a bald, a fully bald Lex. However, he got that way, you know, because uh, the story does vary. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, it didn't didn't really take me out of this particular reread because I, at this point I'm sort of used to it. And, and again, we just I just reread that issue for that that Lex episode. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't disagree. Well, it's it's yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that that's a fair point. What's so funny though is that. Because I was thinking, I was like, well, is there anything else that really ties it? You know, Ma and Pa being alive, but at this point, we're so far past crisis. And yes, there was the New 52 era where they where they weren't alive. But there's been now such a long period of time where they've generally been alive that I don't think their presence really dates it so much. I, it is true. I really do think that uh, that receding hairline <laughs> is sort of the main marker that lets you know we're in that that John Byrne post-crisis evil businessman iteration of the character. I don't mind it because I think it's a fair trade-off. Now, you know, this is not the main objective of our discussion here, but what I do appreciate about For All Seasons is that at the time, Man of Steel was the origin story. And what what Loeb and Sale do, you know, uh, you know, very well and very delicately is they really kind of dance around the main moments in Man of Steel and I think flesh them out and, and give them some more weight and some more context. So for example, uh, at the end of Man of Steel number one, where Clark you know, reveals his secret to, to Lana or he tells her, and he tells her he's leaving, he has this whole thing about like one man can make a difference and I am that man. And I think at the time that really played into the 80s, you know, America, the patriotism, like that whole thing. But in Four All Seasons number one, right, he deals with this tornado that devastates the town and he saves the people he can. But, you know, he has this moment of like, well, I could have done more. And he has that speech with the, that conversation with the pastor. And he's like, well, what if one man, just one man could have stopped this? So it's like then when you go to look at that conversation with Lana in Man of Steel, it's like, oh, there's 
there's a little bit more behind it. Uh, yeah, and then even when we talked about Lex, right, the fact that the Lex issue starts with him being released from prison and, you know, that's, you know, piggybacks right off of his arrest uh, in, in Man of Steel number number four, I think. So, I, like I said, I think that's a it's a fair trade-off to have a story that at the time fit within the established origin, even if that means that moving forward we, we date it a little bit. Yeah, look, when, when Byrne was writing and drawing Superman, you know, he had only a certain amount of space in each issue to do a lot of legwork, right? Rebuilding the character and the mythology from the ground up for a new generation. That's a, that's a heavy task. And, and all things considered, I think we'd agree, he did a, he did a perfectly admirable job of it. Um, but necessarily, I think he's focused a lot more on the big moments, the broad strokes, um, as a lot of superhero action-oriented comics tend to do because they know that if you go too long without some punchy punchy you know readers might drop off right again visual medium people are looking for spectacle one of the reasons why i love for all seasons as much as i do is because there are punctuated moments of spectacle but the majority of the story is quiet and it's and it's reflective and it's internal and for for Loeb and Sale here to to give us the moments in between the big ones from Byrne and, and subsequent writers was just smart move because it doesn't contradict any of that continuity. It doesn't, you know, but it it fleshes it out. So recontextualizing Superman's, you know, steadfast speech about the difference one man can make, right? That's a perfect superhero moment. But to know that before he came to that, there were moments of doubt, there were moments of, of needing advice from the people around him who he trusted, to, you know, the moments where he felt that he didn't do enough, wonders if he could have, how much of himself does he need to give to this endeavor? You know, this is, you know, essentially, without saying it directly, about how much of him wants to be Clark and how much of him wants to be Superman, you know, that, that push and pull of not being able to be everywhere at once and save everyone, but always wanting to try and how much of his personal life he has to sacrifice in order to do that. Then you go back to that burn moment and it weighs so much more knowing that this is behind him. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to the story for, for filling in those gaps. Exactly. And, and even within the context of, of its own story in For All Seasons, you know, I think it's so interesting that when Clark leaves Smallville, his, his you know, final morning there, and he walks out into the field to meet Pa, we don't get their goodbyes to each other. You know, he walks up to Pa and he talks about, you know, they talk about never getting tired of seeing the sunrise. And then we're in Metropolis. And that was such a smart choice because it would have been very easy and it would have pulled at the heartstrings, I think, to kind of stay with that for a little bit. But honestly, the lead up to it, where, again, we have Pa's narration and he's like, you know, my my stomach's been uneasy all day. It's like we're at this point where, you know, we've raised him, you know, as best we can and there's nothing left to say but but goodbye. And it's like, oh, it just gets you. And that's and that's all you need. And then to have that, oh, that gore, you know, and the perfect blend of the of of the the pencils and the inks and the and the coloring right just mm-hmm. to get that uh that that scene there is is just absolutely gorgeous and but again just as far as that restraint in the storytelling i think it would have been so easy to, to just kind of stay in that moment but it gave you just enough and you could fill in the rest beautiful 
Yeah, I almost imagine, you know, Loeb sitting at his computer typewriter, you know, working out that scene and and drafting a couple of versions of some dialogue that the two of them could have said and ultimately just going, no, none of it is as effective as leaving, just leaving it. And, and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, Loeb doesn't always do that. Um, but, but in this particular story and, and in some of the other ones that we cherish, he, he knows when to go forward and he knows when to pull back. Um, and especially when you have a collaborator as gifted as to sale, because, you know, here's an instance where he can trust his artist. And in this case, artists, right? Cause again, the, the colorist cannot be understated here. Um, to convey um, the tone of the scene, the emotion, the emotional weight of the scene without having to burden it with, with text or with too much text. Um, there's another panel that comes to mind where he similarly uses restraint. It's in the last chapter in the, in the winter chapter. Um, and there's this beautiful sort of like establishing shot of the farmhouse and the, and the barn um, in the sort of desolation of winter. And, Sale pulls the camera way back to, to show us the isolation of the farm on the Kansas landscape. And with a couple of lines, this is one of those panels where Sale didn't go heavy on the detail, but with a couple of lines, he gives the bare trees this, this movement where you can tell that there's a, a sharp, cold wind blowing because of the angle of the trees. And it's so skillful. And, and what I noticed this time around was not just the sense of movement, which is very hard to do in a static visual medium like comics, right? Because the pages, the images don't actually move, right? But you feel the sense of movement. But here's the, the genius of sail to not just convey movement, but the trees are actually blowing uh, to the left, and that's important because as American readers, as Western readers, we read from left to right. So our eyes want to proceed through the panel from left to right. So by having the tree blow left, it's fighting against your instinct to move to the right. It's like the wind is pushing your senses back the way that they would if you were outside on, you know, on the Kansas farm trying to walk past and through that wind. It would bite and cut right through you. And I felt that in that panel. That is the work of a genius artist. That's to be honest. I I don't know that I I was as dialed into that. I'll have to go back and take a look. But that's that's incredible. Yeah, I I, I want to circle back to the Smallville of it all. But while we were you know we were talking about Lex for a moment, and I just want to jump for for a second to Kryptonite, the Kryptonite storyline, because there we do get the traditionally bald Lex. And this just jumped out at me, given our discussion and all of the episodes that I have just done on, on Lex, because it's this great moment where there's this fun outdoor fundraiser, right? And Lex is speaking, this is in the kryptonite storyline. And he's talking about this new x-ray machine that he either invented or, or had developed and is donating to the hospital, like this really advanced x-ray machine. Like it sounds amazing. And everyone just like, brushes past that when they see Superman fly down with a giant cake. And it was one of those things where it's like, <laughs> yo, you almost feel for Lex to a point. Like that's so, it was such a great scene because it's so perfectly <laughs> encapsulated, uh, especially that sort of, you know, iteration of, of Lex and the dynamic 
right? Where he's trying to do something for the people that shows human innovation and ingenuity. And they just have eyes for the, the guy in the cape with the giant cake. Wasn't Superman there to announce the, the donation of like an entire building or campus? Yes. Right. So, so, and, and he knows as he goes to do this, that it's going to piss off Lex because he knows that Lex's ego is going to take a huge hit because he's so proud of the x-ray machine that he's donating and Superman has to be the one to, to deliver the news that it was the, it was Tony, right? It was the the villain of the piece who, who is now (laughs) donating way more (laughs) than Lex was willing to. And it just undermines everything that Lex was going to do. I love that scene so much. It was such a great scene. I think, is it Superman himself or is it some, one of the other administrators there, but someone makes, makes a, a little bit of a dig at Lex of like, Oh, like this building will be great. We could put Lex's x-ray machine. Is it, is it Superman? <laughs> I think it was somebody else. Okay. I don't think Superman would, would take the dig like that, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it, it, it's so passive aggressive. Uh, and, and Lex takes it hard and, and it's, yeah, that's one of those moments where, you know, in the pantheon of Lex, stories you know you look at why he might be resentful of someone like superman and there it is it's right there there's uh, kryptonite also has uh, another favorite lex moment of mine although it's really a jimmy moment where (laughs) uh you know where this is where lex is you know using the kryptonite against superman you know that that whole that whole scene but but jimmy kind of like loses it at one point and he says and this is i'm paraphrasing slightly but he but he's like Jesus, Lex, like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you such an ass? Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that version of Jimmy and also just that, you know, that being uh, lobbed at Lex. It, it was a fun moment. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't get to see Jimmy, if I'm correct, in For All Seasons because that's not it's not sort of where Clark is in his in his life. But we do get Jimmy in, in the Kryptonite story. Um, that was so visually that was one of the places where I was thrown at first, but ultimately liked it. Tim Sale draws Jimmy here looking very young. I mean, very young. Um, where there's, there's one moment where he, I think he was like running, leaping. And, and, and I was like the, the size of the length of his legs and are, it's like, he looks like he's 10, um, but he must've been maybe 16 or 17. You know, he's still, he's still young. So it threw me for a minute, but ultimately didn't, didn't take me out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so now just jumping back to, for all seasons and the Smallville of it all, I, I recently came across someone who posted on Twitter uh, a, a, an old video interview with Tim Sale. I don't know exactly where it was from, but he was talking about For All Seasons, and uh, he said something that was that was kind of interesting to me. That he said, you know, when people talk about the story and they remember the story, he's like, I think they're really remembering the Smallville pieces of it. And he said that for him, those were the most the most meaningful parts of the story. And it was it was funny to me because. I I had not reread For All Seasons in many years, and then I, I reread it last year when I did the Origins discussions. And going into it in my mind, in my memory, I definitely, I went into it thinking, oh, it's a whole Smallville story. The middle chapters in Metropolis kind of threw me for a loop because in my mind, it was really all about the Smallville, which is so interesting. And speaking of Smallville, I think one of the most, you know, iconic settings uh, in that is is the main street of Smallville. And again, you talk about that detail about the general store and all the other businesses, that main street. And, you know, we see it depicted a, you know, a few times in the story. And I remember years later when Loeb and Ed McGinnis were doing their Superman run, 
I believe this was in the lead up to, you know, or during the president Lex storyline during the campaign when they announced Pete Ross as a, uh, as vice. I think it was it was in that issue or in any event around that time. Ed McGinnis drew the main street of Smallville, and he he followed Tim Sale's lead and even gave him a little. There was a little credit at the bottom of the page, like after Sale, yeah. uh, which I love. So I love that he he gave the town that look and that identity that at least for a period of time was emulated in other stories. I think that's great. Yeah. When you look at, at, at the street scenes or the diner or the, you know, some of those locations in Smallville, you really do see the Rockwellian influence. I mean, it's, it's all there. Every character there looks like they're right out of a rock painting. Um, and, and if that's where Tim Sale is, is drawing from, then that helps to keep it really timeless and, and, and sort of quintessentially rural American. And so for other artists to pick up on that, good on them, because you're not going to find, I think, a better model than what Tim Sale creates here visually. I and, mean, you know, nobody's, nobody's Tim Sale. That can be recreated exactly. But if that's the model you're working from, then that's the way to go, I think. Yeah. So I'm, I have a larger point I want to make in a second, but one more Brian question. Uh, this is a nice little touch. So Brian said, since I know your affection, he means my affection for it's a wonderful life. Mm. And I love it, man. I talked about it on the show before I watch it every Christmas. I love it. He said, did you catch the homage in the general store with Pete Ross? Well, Brian, of course I did. What is it? Amateur (laughs) hour over here? Of course I did. So when Pete Ross goes into the general store, right, he rubs the the little elephant and he's like, I wish I had a million dollars. So that's the same thing that George Bailey does when he goes into Mr. Gower's drugstore. Uh, There's a cigar lighter that he, you know, uh, you know, opens. I wish I had a million dollars. So yes, that was a very nice touch. And I have to imagine that was a a purposeful homage to It's a Wonderful Life. And Brian, I'll raise you one because there's another one. And I think maybe I'm reading too much into it, but- in, in the final issue, there's this moment between uh, Four All Seasons, there's this moment between Martha and Lana. And Martha says to Lana, the right woman can help the right man find the answers he's looking for, which is very similar to what Ma Bailey says to George uh, when she is trying to set him up with Mary, that she's the kind of girl that can help you find the answers you're looking for. I, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into that one, but again, I can't help but think it's a coincidence. I feel like this is a very direct influence there, uh, which I love. I love that so much. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're going to find the one reference, then you're, I think it's a natural extension to see, to see the other. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's pushing too far. I, I would tend to agree with you. Now, all right, this is a larger point about <clears throat> Smallville and the role of Smallville in Superman generally. Because I saw something on Twitter recently. I, I don't remember who posted it, so my apologies. But someone making the point that they don't like when, you know, Clark is sort of defined by, not that he's not defined by his upbringing on the farm, but that he's the farm boy at heart. The point that they were trying to make is that he's had all of these adventures spanning the world, the, the galaxy, the multiverse that he should be informed by all of those. It shouldn't just be like he's the farm boy at heart. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. To an extent, I agree, right? The character, just like all of us, should be informed by all of all of his experiences. And to the extent that, you know, ongoing monthly Superman comics will even allow that, <laughs> sure, right? I, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with it on its face, but I I will uh, to, to quote the show itself, I will always hold on to Smallville and I will always go back to Smallville for a variety of reasons. Yes, there's there's my experience with the TV show and that's a strong influence, but it goes beyond that. 
you know, I've always looked at the identity of the character as Clark on the farm is the, the truest, most honest representation of the character. That's when he's really himself. In both the Superman identity and Clark the reporter, there are elements of disguise. And in fact, in Kryptonite, there's one of my favorite scenes of the whole book is when he's sitting, uh, you know, in, in the Arctic with the polar bear having this pouring his heart out. And he's like, I have to be these two different people and I can't totally be myself in, in, in either one. And so when he's on the farm, that's him at his core. So I, I like that aspect of it. But but the final piece, and I think the biggest one, is he has has had and continues to have such a big life from the very beginning. This journey across the stars as a baby saved his salvation from destruction. He, you know, grows up, you know, in a civilian identity as a reporter, at, you know, in the biggest city in the world for this great metropolitan newspaper as a superhero. He, you know, he's, he's saving the world, the universe, all of these amazing adventures. So I love the contrast between all of that and this quiet, simple upbringing that is ultimately responsible for him being able to do everything else. And to have that contrast, I think that's, that just gets at the heart of the character for me. So yes, everything else should inform the character, but for me, he will always be Clark on the farm because that's what made him the hero. And that's what made him powers aside. That's what makes him Superman. So, and that's why, I mean, no surprise. I love for all seasons so much because it really shows you uh, just how important that time in Smallville was for him. I think I tend to agree with you. Um, and, and what that made me think of is, you know, when I, when I teach Superman and, and sort of the history of, of Superman and his role in superhero storytelling, which is obviously massive because he's the, you know, the father of all superheroes. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, the naming of some of the place, Smallville metropolis, that they're just so on the nose, right? He comes from this small town in the, you know, in the middle of the country, Smallville, you know, what is what is a generic name for a large city area, a metropolis? So it's metropolis. You know, Gotham is, is no different than that, too. Um, but but listening to you talk about it so beautifully, I think there's also a sort of irony to the name Smallville in that, yeah, it is literally a small town, but out of that small town upbringing, this man has now reached the far reaches of the universe, the multiverse and beyond. I mean, he's gone everywhere. He's done everything. But at the end of the day, you know, when he's got a crisis, and I don't mean a, a, a physical crisis, an existential crisis, a personal crisis, anything like that, where does he go? He always goes back to Smallville. Always, always, always. Most of the time, when the stories allow it and his parents are alive, he goes home because he's got to talk to Ma and or Pa. Uh, sometimes he comes back and talks to Lana because unlike Lois, who obviously, you know, he's got this, this deeper, you know, longer lasting romantic relationship with, Lois didn't know him back in the Smallville days. You know, she jokingly nicknamed him Smallville. Like she calls him Smallville because that is who he is, right? But but Lana knew him in those days and loved him in those days. And so sometimes he will go back to Lana and to a lesser extent Pete, but it's, it's, it's always a return to the place and the people that, that were his formative experience. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that that's 
I think that's so important. And I think that's why you and I gravitate to stories set in Smallville, as long as they don't have him as a costume superboy. But but to to, gra- to gravitate towards those stories because you can tell such personal stories in that setting. You can have Superman, Clark laid bare in ways that Metropolis doesn't always allow, in, in ways that Lois doesn't allow, in, in ways that Lex doesn't allow. Uh, the reporter aspect of him doesn't allow, but it all comes back to Smallville. Um, I'm with you 100%. I mean, one of my favorite moments, both in the, it's from a story perspective, but also in terms of Tim Sale's art, is in Kryptonite when Superman shows up after after stopping the volcano or trying to stop the volcano. And, you know, it, it really put him through the ringer. He, yeah. you know, in, inhaled all of this molten lava. And then there's this, you know, crazy scene of him basically vomiting out this, this yeah. lava and he's, he's scared. And, you know, he shows up in the, you know, in, in the kitchen and, you know, he's all, you know, all burned up and everything, but the look on his face and the way his like hands are, are just out in front of him. He looks like a little boy. And, you know, he talks to them about the fear that he felt. And it, it's funny, I, 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 when we talk about Smallville, I think back to the conversation I had with Mark Wade when I interviewed him about Birthright. And as he said in that episode, if it had been up to him in Birthright, he would have killed off the Kents. He doesn't like the idea of them being alive. And I, I don't know, I can't remember, he might have used this exact word, but in, in any event, the idea of it sort of their presence infantilizing him to an extent that he can go to them for help. And I, and I remember the example he used was it's like, you know, if, if Clark goes to Pa for help in fighting Brainiac, like that diminishes Clark. And I respect Mark Wade a lot, but respectfully, I disagree. If Clark is going to Pa for like tactical advice on fighting Brainiac, okay, that's a little, that doesn't totally track. But if he goes there because he's scared, it's so funny because we always hear this, criticism of superman that he's not relatable and i look at so many of the scenes in four all seasons and it's like this this is the relatability this is the human side of the character so for him to experience doubt or fear or any kind of internal struggle and be able to go back to this place that made him and the people who brought him up that to me is everything like i get so much out of those scenes i mean one of my favorite moments in the first issue of four all seasons is after he tries to get a haircut and the and the scissors break and he runs out of there and he goes to Pa in the field and he just walks up to him and he goes, Pa, I'm scared. I, I, again, I you know, when you talk about the human element, I mean it's it's just it's it's right there. So that's why I will always advocate the Kents being there and 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 offering that opportunity because I think it just sheds so much light onto the character. And to your point, we love Lois and I and I love that dynamic. But yeah, it is it is different. And, and I like the fact that there can be that, you know, the, the romantic component and the partnership that he has with Lois, but it's a different dynamic when he's talking with his parents and there's a different dynamic with, with Lana, you know, even their dating history aside, like you said, I mean, this is someone who's known him all his life and there's something to be said for that. You know, especially now, like, as I get older, I think about you know, how many people do you really carry with you from each stage of your life, you know, maybe one or two, you know, it's not a lot. And so when I think about other than my parents, like the people who have really seen me since I was a little kid, all the, you know, it's not a long list. So there, there's something to really cherish about that. So yeah, that's why the Smallville pieces of it uh, make it for me. Yeah. Look, far, far be it for me to, to disagree with Mark Wade, who I respect deeply. I, I mean, I just adore the man's work. I really, truly, he's one of my most favorite 
writers in comics. Um, and, and by all accounts, from everything I've heard and read from him, just a super nice and generous guy. Um, but I, but I, do, I do disagree because I think, I think for me, there's two benefits of, of that Smallville um, setting for Superman to return to. One is it does help to, I don't think infantilize, but humanize Superman, because while the world is looking up to him as a paragon, we, the readers, need to see the moments that the inhabitants of the DCU don't get to see. We need to see him vulnerable. We, I mean, look, both of these stories for all seasons in Kryptonite are about his limitations and his vulnerabilities in some way. And I think it's important for us to see that, right? Because if, if Superman really were not just sort of as powerful as he is, but supremely confident, then I think you really would have a problem writing stories for him that are compelling. Um, the fact that he has the powers that he has, but on occasion doubts his abilities um, or doubts his, his rightness, uh, doubts his, his ability to make the right decisions that helps to humanize him and, then, and therefore makes him more relatable. And at the same time, it also elevates Pa Kent, so chiefly, and Ma and Lana to, to a, a lesser degree, but, but also because knowing that while the world is looking up to Superman, that Superman looks up to Pa, that Pa is the reason why he is the hero that he is, that if he were raised by, you know, look, you know, Red Sun and, and, a, and a handful of other sort of Elseworld tales show us that if, if that rocket crashed anywhere else, if he were raised by anyone else, we don't get the Superman that we have. It is Pa and Ma Kent who created this, this person. And so Pa gets elevated to hero status in and of himself because he's the one that Superman turns to all the time. A hundred percent. I agree with all of that. And as far as, you know, effective ways to challenge Superman in stories, it's like, sure, physically, maybe it is challenging. You know, I've never written a Superman story. It probably is hard <laughs> to come up with a credible threat. But when you can have that, the personal struggle, the internal struggle, uh, that's where, again, I think that that relatability and that tension really comes through. And there's in the in the lowest issue of of for all seasons this idea you know we're in the very beginnings of superman's time in metropolis and this idea that she articulates of like he's too good to be true it seems too good to be true and similarly all the lex episodes that we just did that that comes up a lot this idea that like who is this person who can't be bribed can't be bought can't be intimidated doesn't seem to want anything for himself doesn't seem to have an agenda and you get to the, the final issue of four all seasons and Lana has this, this, this whole thing during the, during the flood sequence where she's like, you know, people have these questions about who, like who, who would have these powers and use them in this way. My wife and I were just talking about this because we're watching the, the new season of, of the boys and we're talking about Homelander. And it's like, yeah, when you remove the influence of the Kents, that's what you end up with. So, you know, as Lana articulates in that issue, it's like, to know the answer to this question of like who would have these powers and not use them selfishly, all you have to know is Clark. And it's not it's not Clark at the Daily Planet. It's 
not, not to knock that version of the character, but it's the version who came up in Smallville with Jonathan and Martha and Lana. It's like he's the answer to the question. Who would who would have this power and not abuse it? Who could possibly have this power and not abuse it? And it's because of those people. So that's why it's it's yeah. it's the heart of it for me always. Yeah, the easy answer to that question is, uh, you know, Superman, you know, Clark. But really, I think if we take sort of the the lines out of this book, it's, you know, who would have those powers and not abuse them? Jonathan Kent's son. Right, yes. I think if we reframe it that way, that I think to me is a more satisfying answer to that question. Well said. And one of the other things that you and I read was a, a five-page short story from the issue of Solo that Tim Sale did years ago. So DC had this, I don't know how long it, it, it lasted, but it was called Solo and each one... Uh, you know, was, was focused on a different artist and had a bunch of stories. It was a very cool concept and there were some great issues. Yeah. And there's a, a five page story in solo number one by Tim sale. That's essentially like four all seasons, 1.5 because it's set on prom night and it's from Martha's perspective. Yeah. The you one know, we don't get, we don't book. get Martha. We don't get Jimmy. We don't get Perry. We get, I'm happy with the ones we do get in four all seasons, but there were a few others. It's like, Oh, it would have been cool. I know we only have four seasons, but it's like, if this <laughs> right. had been six issues, it would have been great. Or if they did a sequel, but, uh, but the, so it's from her perspective and it's about prom night. And basically how, you know, Clark's going to pick up Lana and he's nervous and he finds this, this crotchety old woman who's like, who's, you know, just got the sour puss on her face. And she's broken down on the side of the road and Clark stops to help. And she just speeds off and splatters him with all this mud right before he's to go, supposed to go pick up Lana. But you know what, what Ma says in her narration is like, you know, Clark wouldn't even think twice about stopping to help someone in need because he would expect that other people would do that too. It's like, he's not even thinking that he's doing anything special. Uh, again, it was such a short little story. And then he goes up above the clouds into the rain and he cleans himself off and he goes to get Lana. But it was nice because, you know, in Four All Seasons at the beginning of the trade, and I guess the single issues too, you see some photographs. And one of them is prom night and, and him picking up Lana. So it was nice to sort of go into that moment there. That was, that was really cool. I agree. Yeah, it was like a last minute edition. I think you texted me about it uh, last night and, and I was able to apply. I had the issue too. I still had it. Um, and so I was able to reread it and I haven't read it in a while. And it, especially you know, reading it right after having read for all seasons, it just, it works so beautifully and, and it helped kind of fill in that gap, right? There is that photograph. Let's tell the story from that, from that photograph and let's include Martha who, you know, for whatever reason, Loeb decided just wasn't one of the voices uh, that he included originally. But I mean, it's, you know, the aesthetic is still there. It, it, it fits so seamlessly in. And I actually, I would expect maybe in future trades, maybe, maybe to include it. I don't, I don't know if it is. I have an older trade, but it's well, in fairness, there, there is a new deluxe edition that I don't have. Maybe it's in there. If not, it should be. It really, really should be, um, you know, the story doesn't fall apart without it, but it's a nice, it's a nice little extra chapter to have. And I think would fit in very nicely. So yeah, I do hope that that is included if it's not, uh, if it's not currently. So yeah, Let's, let's, I guess, maybe jump a little bit more into the, the kryptonite storyline here. Yeah. But like you said, thematically, you know, these stories really, really track because it's this whole, like you said, this idea of, of vulnerability and limitations. You know, like that's one of the things in Four All Seasons when Pa has that conversation with Martha that Clark, you know, overhears. It's like, you know, his powers are growing and don't seem to have any limitations. And then, you know, we begin very early on in this, in this kryptonite storyline where, and it's an interesting moment in time to capture because he's begun his career, but he hasn't yet experienced kryptonite. 
and of course hasn't gotten to the point of doomsday and all of that. But you know, he hasn't even experienced kryptonite. So it's like, as far as he knows, nothing can kill him, but he's not positive. And every time he experiences something new, like liquid nitrogen, when he's fighting the Royal flush gang or the molten lava of the volcano that I mentioned, there's fear. He experiences fear because he doesn't know, well, maybe this is the thing that could kill me. So there's that, this idea of, you know, does he have any limits? The fear of, of potentially encountering one of those. And then on the personal side, the, this, this vulnerable, you know, the, the vulnerability that he's showing or, or trying to show with Lois attempting to have some sort of romantic relationship with her. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest about kryptonite. I, again, I think I read it when it first came out. Didn't do a ton for me. I came back to it maybe a few years ago. Found it interesting, but this, I think this was the third time that I read it. I definitely got the most out of it now. And I think was able to put it into its context better than I had before. And so it it, it worked for me more. For you, what's, I guess, what's your overall assessment of of kryptonite? Yeah, I mean, kryptonite is a, is a tough thing. And I think a lot of fans recognize that, you know, having this very specific singular weakness for someone as powerful as Superman has, you know, led down the path of, of, you know, in some cases, really lazy writing where, you know, you have to create some conflict for him. So we'll just throw kryptonite into the story. You know, in some cases it, it, it works. I think this was an instance for me where it worked better than, than in most number one, because it's the introduction of kryptonite, you know, in a modern context. Um, but also, because thematically it ties in. It wasn't just this plot element that was thrown in to, to you know, raise the stakes of the battle. It was, you know, clearly Darwin Cook and Tim Sale set out to tell a story about vulnerability in every way, shape, and form around this character. And so to use the one physical weakness that he has makes sense. To set it at a time, as you said, in his early career, where as far as he knows, nothing's really been able to, to hurt him, but him branching out as a hero and encountering both natural elements and now, you know, this, this kryptonite in ways that make him reconsider what might hurt him or not. I mean, he survives the, the, the lava incident, but it, it, I mean, it is Tim Sale draws it in such a way that it really is, as you described before, like it's disturbing to watch Superman vomit up that lava. I mean, he, his body is sort of twisted and, and the, the, just the way that it's pouring out of his mouth and, and smoking and, and ashing all over the place. It's, it's appropriately disconcerting for the reader because we don't usually see Superman like that. Um, so I think it fits the story. And as you said, then to add in the sort of, emotional or the personal vulnerability and, and, you know, in him opening up and trying to establish relationships with new people. And again, this, I think, speaks to the, the Smallville metropolis divide too, because, you know, in Smallville, those relationships were almost provided for him because everybody in this tiny town, they know each other, they know each other's families, right? For all seasons, we see a, you know, a dinner where it's Lana and her aunt and they're both, you know, over at the Kent's farm you go into town and you know the the name of the the person behind the counter in the diner and the person working the general store and, and now he's in metropolis and there are many many more people obviously because it's a huge city and and lois is a very intimidating person on on the surface like she is not easy to get to know in fact most iterations of 
of of the Superman um, story in which Clark and Lois first meet, she is really dismissive of him because he's this small town hick. And it's not until she realizes that number one, he's a really good reporter. He's super smart and hardworking and and noble that, that she even opens a, a crack to let him in. And so to see him get to be emotionally vulnerable as he's exploring his physical vulnerabilities, to me, that is a good use of kryptonite. And that's why this story works for me. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, one of the things, just talking about Clark and the the physical side and the emotional and fitting in and, and all that, one of the things across both stories that I do love is how large Tim Sale draws him. Like he really stands out. He's like this big corn fed guy from the Midwest. Yeah. I, I mean, he's, you know, he really sticks out. And certainly in four all seasons, and again, that continues into kryptonite, but especially in four all seasons, I mean, it really captures him at this at this crossroads where it's like he doesn't fit in anywhere. And, you know, one of the early issues of four all seasons, he, you know, he comes back to Smallville for a visit and you know, articulates that to Martha of like, you know, I don't really fit in in the big city, but. I've kind of moved on too much. So when I come back here, I, I don't feel like I fit in here either. So it's like, he really sticks out both physically and, and emotionally as well. And with the lowest of it all, you know, we see them initially in the story, having this very romantic dinner at the top of the Eiffel tower. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he misses their next date. And, you know, the, the story, I think does a great job of cutting mm-hmm. back and forth between Lois happily getting ready for her date uh, and and Clark dealing with the volcano, and then Lois, you know, realizing that the date's not going to happen. What what I appreciated about this story is that scene with the polar bear that I mentioned earlier, where you know he talked about really having to play this part as Clark for Lois, and and downplay his natural characteristics, and and what a toll that was taking on him, and and I appreciated that, and. You know, I've now you know read so much, but when we talk about pre-crisis, I've still only really scratched the surface. So maybe there are more instances of this in pre-crisis that I'm not aware of. But I think at least of the post-crisis version, and you know, the Burn Clark was a, we, we've talked about this at length was a very confident, con, you know, capable guy. You know, with the physique that rivaled Superman's. You know, it wasn't like he was really putting on this mild-mannered show. So I, I guess my point is, I. I can't immediately call to mind too many other instances of something like this where Clark is feeling some sort of way about having to act the way he does as Clark. And it was, if we're going to have the triangle, <laughs> that, that tri- the romantic triangle in that sense, I liked, you know, I liked, now Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman, I mean, they, they definitely got at that idea, but, uh, you know, of Lois being interested in Superman and and, and that whole dynamic, but... Uh, but again, there too, that was very much the burn mold. Like that Clark was not, you know, it was not getting pushed around or stepped on per se. So uh, I, I like that a lot. And again, just going back to this idea of the vulnerability and the weakness. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think that's one of the elements of the story that that worked really well for me. And again, you know, Tim Sale as an artist is able to, you know, on one page show us this barrel chested, you know, superhero in the bright colors and then contrast it on the next with a, a quieter moment where he questions everything that he is and everything that he's doing and the ways that he's doing it and what the, what it means for him to be able to continue to operate like this 
for however long he's able to do it. Um, I don't think every art, I, it's, you know, it's easy to look at it and go, yeah, you know, the art's fine. But I, I don't know how many people really appreciate how difficult that is for one artist with a singular style to be able to successfully communicate one thing visually and then in the same story, turn around and communicate the complete opposite and do that successfully as well. And again, that's just where that's just where sale just is such a master. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the characters and not the, you know, and not, you know, not to, I don't say this at the expense of other artists, but you really see like his characters are performing. You know, it's like you talk about an actor's performance and something and the difference between a good actor or a bad actor or a great actor and it's like, he, you know, through his art, these characters are really performing and conveying the emotion that they're experiencing. I mean, I love, I think it's the end of, what is it, number two, I want to say, of Kryptonite, mm-hmm. where, uh, oh, I think it is number two, where Lois has gone off on her date with with Tony Gallo, who's opening the new casino, uh, but she's mm-hmm. also investigating him for a story. Uh, but Superman shows up after having missed their date, and all he sees is is them parting and Lois being like, I had a great time tonight. And the issue ends with him just flying above her. He's like, uh, hi. And you see him above her and there's a lot of, you know, empty space on the page and you see his shadow. It's like, it's, it's so good. That's one of my favorite moments visually of the, of the miniseries. Oh, I agree with you so much. I love that moment so much. Um, and again, it's, it's a moment where Superman is vulnerable. He knows he has, he has screwed up in this one, one part of his life, even as he, you know, saved people you know, which is what more noble reason is there to stand somebody up on a date than you're out saving people's lives. I mean, it's, and yet he is, you know, worried in that moment that he has, you know, turned Lois off for good. I mean, she seems to be hitting it off with somebody, even though we know it's, you know, it's largely a ruse, but, you know, he doesn't necessarily know that. Um, and so to see him in a moment of vulnerability, even as he does something that is so far and above what anybody can do, even somebody as rich and powerful as Tony Gallo, he's flying. He is flying, having just saved people's lives, and he is worried that he just lost the girl. And Sale communicates all of that in just that visual. Brilliant. And I I have to give them credit too, though, for the handling of Lois, because when they have their quote unquote breakup scene, like it, it, she's, she is mature and understands the responsibility that he has. She's not giving him a hard time about it, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily work for them, at least at this point in time. Uh, But I appreciated the handling of Lois. Now, one of Brian's other questions uh, points to, I guess, the, the, I guess if I have any roadblock to my total enjoyment of kryptonite, this points to it. Uh, Brian asked, and I'll pose the question to you, Scott, what do you think of the narrator aspect in the kryptonite story? Not, I don't think he's talking about Clark's uh, internal monologue, but the, 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 the narration that we get at the beginning of each of the, of the issues from the, from the kryptonite, so to speak. Um, I hadn't given it much thought actually until you just asked the question. Um, It's, you know, now that I'm revisiting it, it, I think it's, it's a little odd and I think it maybe butts into Clark's narration a bit. I'm always a little bit wary of too many narrators in the same story. Um, It's a, it's a hallmark of comics, particularly in, you know, in stories 
featuring large casts. Um, I know for me as a, as a kid, it, it came up in X-Men all the time where you'd have, you know, three or four of the different X-Men narrating different parts of the story. And as long as those parts remain sort of discreet and separate from the others, it didn't bother me, this, the switching of the voice. But sometimes you get the same, uh, two, two or more voices on the same scene. I mean, Loeb did it with Superman, Batman all the time. Yes, um, that was an instance where I think it worked because you're getting the two characters' um, impressions of the same moment and seeing how how they each see the same thing but differently. Here, I don't know that the kryptonite voice, you know, personifying kryptonite, I, it certainly didn't add anything major to the story for me. I don't know that it took anything away. I just think I I, I mostly saw it as an oddity. Gotcha. So going back to this idea of, you know, our, our memory versus the, the reality of it, I, like I said, it's been a few years since I read Kryptonite. I went into this convinced that it was, the Kryptonite itself was sentient and we were getting literally the Kryptonite's thoughts. And, and that's at least the way it, you know, reads initially. And you find out ultimately that however you want to describe this, there was this cosmic <laughs> historian, <laughs> yeah. a watcher-esque character uh, who was observing Krypton and Krypton's demise and was trapped within the physical confines of the, the meteorite when Krypton exploded. And so at the beginning of each issue of Kryptonite, we follow the Kryptonite's journey, right? And experiencing different aspects of human culture. First, he's taken in by these zen monks and and has that sort of experience and then is 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 taken to uh you know more more intense um atmosphere surrounded by a lot of death so you you follow the kryptonite's journey uh all the way up to to vegas and then to metropolis and the opening of this casino and you know i'm the story's been out for so many years i'm assuming people have read it i you know i don't, I don't really spoil it but i guess i'm going to so if you if you haven't read it maybe cover your ears for a minute here but <laughs> you know yes essentially we find out that it, it is this cosmic historian within the kryptonite whose name the closest approximation to in english would be bridgewater and uh, has actually been able to take control of tony gallo this unrepentant killer uh, who set out to build this empire of 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 you know c- casinos and, and greed, uh, and that's ultimately how Clark is able to learn about where he came from, right? Gallo reveals that he's actually this historian, and shows Clark these visions of Krypton. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's the part of the story that leaves me a little cold. I like the effect of the kryptonite itself, you know, the first time Clark experiences it and he's trying to stop a, a robbery that Lex had, had orchestrated and, you know, it's this excruciating pain unlike anything he's ever felt before. You know, that aspect of it worked. Uh, I, I think sort of tracking the kryptonite's journey and then the revelation of this cosmic historian within who, who, who you know, tells Clark about where he's from, I, again, it just leaves me sort of cold. It's not so off-putting where I'm like, oh, the story's crap. It's not that. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily resonate so much for me. I think it's a fair thing to just say it's the least appealing aspect of what is otherwise a really solid, if not really good story. Because there are plenty of elements of this that I really enjoy. And I'd, forgo- I'd really forgotten almost everything about the story. 
Um, I had read it when it first came out, and especially because of the delay between part five and part six, I, I think it just sort of left my mind. And then I read part six, and I don't even think I understood it because I didn't bother to reread parts one through five at the time. And now getting to, to read it all at once, um, I found it a very enjoyable experience. I really liked the story. I was, you know, I was focusing a lot on the art because I knew the focus of the episode that we're doing here is, is Tim Sale. But, um, you know, and I know Darwin Cook is, is trying to play both sides in, in being somewhat faithful to the original Golden Age story that this comes from, but also updating it for a modern audience. And maybe that's just one of the places where it didn't quite work or translate as well. And I can forgive that. I just, you know, it, it was fine. Yeah, fair enough. Again, I think thematically the story works very well for me. I think just in some in terms of some of the nuts and bolts of it, that that's where it loses me. But I think too, it's not, I guess there's, there's more of a reason having now spent so much time studying and discussing the various tellings of the origin, I, I guess, while I can appreciate different interpretations, there are certain beats that I now have really come to enjoy and want to see. And, you know, when we talk about how and when Clark learns where he's from, you know, we've seen different different versions of this. Uh, you know, in, in Man of Steel, for example, I mean, he doesn't, you know, he, he sees, you know, Pa shows him the rocket before he leaves Smallville, but he doesn't find out that he's from Krypton until well into his journey as Superman, where he sees the vision of Jor-El in the kitchen. Uh, so I guess for me, and I won't, you know, rehash all of the, the origin stuff because it's plenty to unpack, but I think for me, I, I, I need to see Jonathan showing Clark the rocket because I feel like that's just such an iconic moment now. And it just, you know, a lot kind of clicks into into place for Clark that he understands why he's different, but he still doesn't have all of the answers. So I love that moment of Jonathan showing him the rocket. Now, something like Superman the Animated Series, for example, or the Secret Origin comic, they went real quick and clean and simple. It's like along with the with the reveal of the rocket, whether it's a crystal or a disc or whatever, Clark sees this message from Jor-El or Jor-El and Lara and he learns where he's from and he's, he's off and running. Uh, whereas again, other instances, it, it takes a little bit longer. And I like, for me personally, I like there to be some sort of quest to learn where he's from, like we see in the Man of Steel movie or we see in Superman Birthright. I like this idea that he knows he's not from here, but he doesn't, he doesn't know and he has to go off and search. But I, I like him to get those answers before becoming Superman. I agree with you. I think that the 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 moment or the episode of of Jonathan and Martha, but, but primarily Jonathan, showing Clark the rocket is really really important. In your mind, how old is Clark when that happens? Let's see. In the Smallville pilot, Clark was <laughs> fifteen. Oh, so that's that's where it lives permanently for you. No, because I can, I can see the scene playing a little bit differently depending on how old he is you know does you know and 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 i think that that's probably informed by like what is the rate of development of the powers yeah right because because smallville kind of the, the smallville tv show you know does it as sort of a, a puberty metaphor right where he's a, a teenager and you know and, and he's an underclassman in high school and he starts to develop although the, i think the strength and the speed were always there right yeah and then other other things develop but but 
you know, if we if we look at it as he's a teenager when the powers start to develop, and there's just no hiding it anymore, right? This is clearly because he comes from somewhere else, and we have to show him this. Or is it something where, you know, like Superman the movie, like he's a baby lifting the tractor, like he's so, you know, do we, you know, do we reveal it when he's 10 or 11, where he's sort of like cognitively able to understand that he's different and is asking questions about, about why I think that that makes a difference in terms of how that scene plays and and then the quest that necessarily follows. I, yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I think, yeah, it, de- it depends on on what story we're telling. I mean, in the, you know, Burn, for example, and again, talking about how For All Seasons and, and Man of Steel, like For All Seasons references Pa showing him the rocket, right? And we're having that conversation, yeah. but you don't see it. So again, in between those moments. But there, I mean, that was pretty close to him the time that he leaves Smallville. So, you know, it can work in that respect where like that sort of, especially in versions of the story where the Kents live, Mm-hmm. as opposed to something like Superman the movie where Pa dying, that's that's the moment, right? That's where he's crossing over into, into adulthood. Uh, whereas something like Man of Steel, it's like, okay, that's the catalyst to leaving Smallville. So right. it can work in that respect. Um, I think regardless of age, I, I think I, I'm more, I, I would more go by, like you said, the development of the powers. And I think when it's at a point where he needs some answers, that's the time. And, you know, like in Man of Steel, I mean, I think Clark was younger than uh, the, you know, the, the Clark on Smallville. Uh, although that might have just been, <laughs> might have just been the difference in actor. I don't know. <laughs> How well he was thirty six. <laughs> you know, but you know, with uh, in Man of Steel or in, in the Secret Origin, because it's the same moment plays out when he's a little bit younger. I think that, you know, what what Clark responds with of "Can I keep pretending I'm your son?" You know, I think when he's younger, that 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 plays even more. In, in any event, uh, so I have, I guess, in my mind, my headcanon, a certain sequence of events that the Kryptonite story didn't necessarily line up with. And I guess I just found this Bridgewater character just kind of in an oddity. But I can appreciate, and that's the thing, always trying to remember the context and the intention. And yeah. Cook's starting point was this this Superman 61 like this. So this was his spin on that, not necessarily trying to give us the definitive Superman origin. So, you know, again, I can get past it, but that's the one aspect of the story that, like I said, leaves me a bit cold. Yeah, I hear you. Um, you know, in talking about this, it, it just reminds me of, you know, some of the, the staying power of the, particularly for all seasons. I think, I think kryptonite less so also because it came out later. Um, You know, the creators of, of the Smallville TV show have, I think stated publicly that for all seasons was a touchstone for the aesthetic of their show and, and, and a lot of the things that they wanted to accomplish. And obviously over its 10 year run, Smallville sort of began to deviate quite significantly from for all seasons. But when you watch the, that first season in particular, if you don't see the the Superman for all seasons, the Tim sale of it, you know, the influence you're missing something, right? It's, it's so clearly felt in, in that show. And, and I think one of the reasons why the show was so successful um, because they had this amazing source material to, to draw from. And I would even say um, that, you know, for those who like for all seasons, if you're not watching Superman and Lois, there is, I, I feel the influence there too, even though even though we're getting a very different Clark 
right? But the decision to move Clark, Lois, and their two teenage sons out of Metropolis, which is where they're living when the show begins, back to the farm on Smallville, even after Ma and Pa Kent are gone, um, I think is an attempt to root that show in as much of For All Seasons as they possibly can. Uh, the visuals, scree- I mean, rereading For All Seasons now, having just sort of caught up and, and watched the last couple episodes that aired of Superman and Lois, I, I couldn't help but see the parallels. They're all there. And what I hadn't remembered, what I hadn't remembered is there is a moment on Superman and Lois early on that they pulled right out of For All Seasons when Superman rescues some kid and the kid's hat flies off and he, you know, gives the hat back to the kid and the kid looks up and says, wow, cool costume. And as he's sort of hovering above, ready to fly away, Superman in the most earnest way possible. And you, and you, you feel the Smallville Kent farm Clark just pouring out of it just goes, thanks. My mom made it for me. It's, it's word for word, right out of the book on the screen and I forgot that that moment was in this book. And it, I just, I was so tickled when I read that. I, I just, the, the ability of, of storytellers 20 plus years later to be able to draw on this story particularly um, is such a testament to what Loeb and Sale have, had created and, and the, the visual that Sale had established for what Smallville looks like, but more importantly, what it feels like. And we feel that still today. I, I'm totally with you. I, uh, yeah, you see the influence in, in ways big and small, whether it's a direct quote or like you said, just the feel of it. Uh, yeah, I've been you know very public about my love of, of Superman and Lois and uh, especially ways in which it you know, draws from that, that Smallville, you know, the, the heart of Smallville. It's funny, like, what is it, it for you personally, like, what is it you think makes that, that takes that farming, that farm setting, right. And lends itself so well to these, <laughs> to these life lessons. Cause I think one of the things I always come back to is uh, a quote from uh, Jonathan Kent in the season 10 premiere of Smallville when he appears to Clark as a vision Mm -hmm. and he's like working on a fence out in the field and he's like chores Clark work keeps a man honest I mean is it is it as simple as that as being connected to the earth and and using your hands and working in that way and sort of seeing the the product of your work at the end of the day and taking you know I mean like or is it something else because there's it just seems like it's such a perfect like the the farm and the life on the farm, it feels like such a perfect vehicle <laughs> to deliver these lessons. Or even in four all seasons, when Pa's narrating and the tornado started, and he has this bit, and you imagine it's something he's probably said to Clark of like, you know, we get to we get to farm the land and reap nature's bounty. Every now and then, Bill comes due, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we're not going to cry about this. We're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. This is something that happens, and it's something not that we deserve it, but there's a balance, there's an order to things, right? So we get this on one end, but every now and then there's a price to pay. So I, I don't know. I mean, is it, I don't know, for you, is, is there anything that you sort of, uh, that, that you kind of gravitate toward that accounts for why this is so effective? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always thought that there was an elegance 
to that part of Superman's art. I mean, the whole origin is, is elegant in its own way, but the farm in particular, because it is, I mean, more so in the time in which Superman was created, but it, but it holds true even now. It is, it is a lifestyle relatively unencumbered by the complications of you know, the, the developments of the 20th and now 21st century. I mean, you know, when he moves to Metropolis, it, it feels, looks and feels different for a reason. I mean, it is about, it is about crowds and commerce and, and technology. And when he's on the farm, life is slower and it's quieter. And because it is so connected to the earth, it is, you know, being a farmer is that job that, you know, it can provide everything you need to live, but, and, and, and nothing more and nothing more. So it is, it is self-sustaining by, obviously by design, it's self-sustaining. The Kents have never been rich. They have just what they need, you know, a modest home, the farmland that they own and the, the two hands to work it. Um, every life lesson, as you pointed out, every life lesson that Jonathan needs to teach Clark about what it means to be a decent human being uh, and to exist as a citizen of the planets, right? So you're existing with other people, but also with, with the earth itself can be taught on the farm. And then it's, and then when, when he, when Clark matures and leaves, it becomes the refuge, right? It's, it's, it's not quite his fortress of solitude, but it is its own fortress in its own way um, where he can go and, and return, right? It's a return. It's a, it's a, it's a rejuvenation. It's a restoration of everything that makes him, him that he can't get in Metropolis because it's just too bustling. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that if, if Tim Sale lent nothing more to the Superman mythology than just to sort of firmly root the farm and Smallville into the the pantheon, into the visual mythology of Superman, then he will have created something that lasts, f- I think, forever. That's beautifully said, and that could very well be our endpoint. But there are just two two last things that I want to mention. That if there's anything else that you want to get to. Uh, that we haven't hit on yet. Um, just with this idea of the the vulnerability and the kryptonite story, I love, I love this spin on it that Clark feels a sense of relief, surprisingly, that there's something that could kill him. Uh, whereas you might expect the opposite. And in fact, it, it, thematically, that does tie back to for all seasons the the fear that Clark has, and also that that Pa has as he's talking with Martha about like this apparent lack of limitations that seems to be you know in for all seasons it's it's not like oh there, there might be something out there that could kill me it's like i don't know that there's any end to what i can do and just the fear that that conjures uh so to sort of kind of see that all the way through in kryptonite this notion that oh there is actually something that can kill me but rather than that causing me fear it's it's almost a relief and it allows me to feel more human and I think that sort of unlocks on the on the Clark Kent side of it. It's Clark who shows up at Lois's door at the end. And though this isn't, you know, spelled out explicitly, maybe this idea that he maybe he doesn't need to pretend so much with Lois anymore because he's not this totally indestructible being. He does have this weakness. And even though, yes, maybe there's still a, a bit of a part that he's playing, there's a little bit more honesty to it now 
because he does have that vulnerability. I thought that was just such a great, a great spin on the kryptonite of it all. I agree. And, and that registered with me too. And I had very similar thoughts to yours in that it is in many ways scarier to think about a person, no matter how well he was raised with all of the powers of Superman and none of the vulnerabilities, right? If he can do anything and there's no way to, to take him down, what kind of person monster could he one day become? Whereas just knowing that he's got even just that one vulnerability, I I agree with you. I think it makes him, I think it humanizes him both for us, the audience and for him internally. It it makes him realize I, I am still human because every human, no matter how great they are, has some sort of weakness, vulnerability. Um, so yeah, that registered with me. It was a really subtle, interesting wrinkle to the whole notion of limitations that I, it's one of those things where you look at and you go, why had no one ever thought of that before? And then here it was. And you're like, that's, that's just, that's genius. So, so good. So good. Yeah, it really is a nice touch. And you know, people, if there are any other instances of that, that you can think of, feel free to let me know. Cause nothing really comes to mind for me. Like I've never seen him respond to kryptonite in that way. And yeah, I think that was such a great, a great twist on it. And the, the last thing that was sort of on my list is Jonathan and Martha in Kryptonite, but specifically Martha, because, you know, we talked about in For All Seasons, you know, she doesn't get a ton of play. It's really more from Pa's perspective. She has her moments, but mm-hmm. in, in Kryptonite, there's the scene where, you know, Clark comes after the, after the lava and he's experiencing all this, you know, the, this fear and shame over the fear that he felt. And Pa takes him outside and, you know, first Clark is like, oh, I, you, know, I, you know, I hope you're not disappointed in me. And to Pa's credit, he's like, I could never be disappointed in you. He's like, but basically, you know, when you need to talk about stuff like this, just come to me. Don't worry your yeah. mother. And he's, he, and he's like, you know, if she had to worry about you out there, I don't know that she could take it. And, and the last thing he says to Clark is, you know, any man that would put that kind of burden on a woman he loves, well, he's not a man. And Clark's like, I, I understand, Pa. I, I don't know if you read the, uh, the, I, I guess you did, right? In the in the trade for Kryptonite, Tim Sale's uh, sketchbook at the back. Mm-hmm. He talked about that, how that moment essentially kind of, you know, didn't totally line up with his vision uh, when when they were doing this. And Darwin Cook was like, "Don't worry, <laughs> like we, I got you covered." And because you get the payoff to that in a subsequent issue, where Martha's like, "Yeah, I heard him tell you that," and you know, "Don't you dare!" It's like if you you unload on us basically as as much as you need to, like it's if I worry about you, like it's my worry is worth it essentially is, is the spirit of it. And then Pa comes in asking for pie and she's like, get your own damn pie. <laughs> but it was a nice, the question I had for you, I mean, anything you want to say about that, but the question I had for you was interesting. If we didn't get that subsequent scene with Martha, if it was just left at, don't worry your mother, that's not what a man does. Would you have bought that? Or would you have been like, oh, that's kind of, that's a little off. Cause I don't know how I would have. And I was curious what you would think. Uh, so, so the payoff scene definitely redeemed that because I had very strong feelings and they weren't positive uh, about the initial scene because to me, it read as Pa really underestimating Ma's strength. Like she is in her own way, a very, very strong 
woman and a capable mother and and she knows full well what she's sort of walked into here with Clark and is and is you know supportive of him and 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 comforting to him and and yeah i mean look every parent worries about their child and maybe the parents of superman worry a little bit more uh because of the things that he's asked to do um but i didn't love that that pa had that take it, it read it, it read as frankly just sexist um and that's not a quality i would associate with with pa kent um i don't I sort of don't mind it if Ma turns around later on and says, hey, listen, like, whatever this lesson is that you're trying to teach him on my account, like, I'm I'm stronger than that. And maybe Pa needs to be reminded of that sometimes. I think that they're just, they're old enough and they've been together long enough that he probably should know that already. So I didn't love that. I like the idea more than I like how it played out. I, I hear you. No, I just ask because it's just one of those things as a thought exercise. I was like, well, if we hadn't gotten that redemption scene, as it were, it's like, would you come away from that sort of feeling like, oh, like this is what Poth Kent thinks? And might we subscribe to that too? Because it's like we're conditioned to, right, right. <laughs> to sort of uh, align ourselves with that. But no, I, I think you definitely needed the the other side of that. I The Poth scene in and of itself I don't disagree with anything you said, but I do think the, you know, you're not a man if you do that. That's the part of it that felt most off. I mean, you take that out. He's still underestimating Martha, but the you're not a man aspect of it. That was, I think, more than anything. I was like, eh, like I don't know that that's really what I would expect from Pa. But in any event, it was it was great to get that that subsequent scene. And then I think it's I think it's right after that where they're all in the barn together. So. And he's telling yeah. them about, about the kryptonite and they, you know, they all embrace and Clark thinks to himself, like, if they asked me to stay right now, I think I would, and I would never go back. He goes, but I know yeah. they won't ask and I can't, uh, but it was, it was a great moment. And then at the very end of the story, now, after he's told them about these origins that he's discovered and, and Martha's like, so, you know, do you want us to call you Kal-El now? Uh, you know, and he has this great moment about, it. he's like, no, I'm glad that I learned about my mother and father, but you know. My mom and pa named me Clark. That's my name. Ah, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Mm. Well, especially because it's Martha's maiden name. And, you know, there's the, the, that's that family history and tradition that Clark, even though he's not biologically theirs, I think is very proud to, to be a part of. I don't think he'd ever get rid of that name knowing. You know? yeah. Is there anything else we have not gotten to that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I mean, we hit on, on, you know, everything I had in my notes and, and, and everything I was thinking of just, just, Again, I you know I want to reiterate as you said before you know condolences to to Tim Sale's family friends collaborators. Um, I hope that this episode did Anthony what you wanted it to do, but more importantly, uh, you know I hope that it was us lighting a candle in the darkness uh, for Tim Sale to celebrate the work of this, this phenomenal artist who contributed so much, not just to Superman, but to comics in general and, and whose influence will be felt forever in, in the comics medium and, and beyond. I mean, his, his works, you know, speaks for itself, but it's nice to, to be able to take this, this focus, this really sharp focus on, on what he contributed to Superman as just an example of, of his talent and his ability and his heart. So, uh, you know, Tim Sale, uh, you know, we miss you and we appreciate you. 
Beautifully said. Thank you, you know, very much for for joining me for this. And, and you know, this was somewhat impromptu, so I appreciate you uh, mobilizing uh, as quickly as you did and 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 doing this with me. I I so enjoyed our conversation, and I really enjoyed going back to these works and and like I said, reading them together and both of them, but in particular for all seasons, it, it, it's just an all time favorite, and I, it always will be. It really, and I, I recognize this and appreciate it more and more each time I read it. It just so gets to the heart of what I love about this character. And yes, you're right. You see the influence in Smallville. You see the influence in Superman and Lois. And I, I you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's like more and more I realize how, you know, without this, not that my fandom would have diminished, but this holds a very special place and I think served a very, very special and important role in my journey as a Superman fan. And again, going back to this idea of the work living on, look, like we all know, I worked at a comic shop for a long time and, you know, it it wasn't every day, but sometimes someone would come in (laughs) looking to get into comics or to get into Superman. And, and, you know, we can say the same thing about Batman and the long Halloween or Mm Spider-Man and the color books, whatever the case may be. But especially in the case of something like this, this was always, always, always a book that I could give to someone. And I don't work at a comic shop anymore, but if I did, this would remain would remain one of those recommendations. Funny enough, uh, one of our listeners reached out over Facebook. This was before Tim Sale had, had passed, but uh, he was saying he's a, he's a buddy of uh, Jeremy's who's been on the show a bunch mm-hmm. of times, and that's why he started listening to the show. And he was like, you know, I'm really not a Superman fan, but I enjoy listening to the podcast because I, I would like to be a Superman fan. And he talked about one of the roadblocks being, you know, this idea that Superman isn't vulnerable. And so he was interested in stories that showed the vulnerable side and the human side. And the first thing that I recommended was For All Seasons. And and, and I always would. So I can't speak highly enough about, about both stories, but especially For All Seasons uh, or about Tim Sale and, and his art. And and again, I think the the best thing we can say, at least from a fan standpoint, is that the work, you know, the work will live on and will continue to be, you know, recommended and and enjoyed and discovered. You know, that's the thing. Like new people will continue to discover this and read it for that first time. And, and I hope yeah. that they get as much out of it as we have. Yeah, I agree. Couldn't have said it better. So thank you again, Scott, so much. I appreciate it. Audience, thank you very much. We will be back here in one week with our next all new episode. Until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Like the Digging for Kryptonite Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at Digging for Kryptonite Pod and on Twitter at Digging for KR Pod. Also, be sure to visit FlatSquirrelProductions.com for more film and podcast projects, including My Comic Shop History and My Comic Shop Country. Thank you.